0: Hello, Monetization Nation. On today's episode, I am joined with Danny Levin. Danny walked away from running a billion dollar company to find happiness and inner peace while living as a monk in a monastery for 10 years. He later helped lead Hay House to grow it from $3 million to $100 million a year in revenue. He's also the author of The Mosaic, which introduces the four practices of connection, a completely new innovative strategy to reconnect people and help companies work together to innovate and achieve more. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Danny.
1: It it is such an honor to be here. And I want people to hear everything you say, be grateful. I'm so thankful for that introduction and for all the merits that you said. And then I want them to forget everything about it because the (laughs) only important thing, Nathan, in this moment, is that do we relate to each other? Do we feel each other? Do we make a connection with each other? And if we do, all of that you said would be valuable. But if we don't, none of it matters because none of, none of that helped us to connect to each other right now.
0: Okay, so uh, let's start off by having you share with us your journey. Your journey to become a monk, your journey as an entrepreneur, building a billion-dollar company. Just share your story with us.
1: How many millions of years do you have? <laughs> I, I, I always wish that I was the type of person that lived four blocks from where my parents lived, that I went into my dad's company, that I stayed friends with all the neighborhood friends that I had. But I wasn't given that opportunity, Nathan. My opportunities were taken from me in regards to that. When I was 13 years old, my dad passed away um, completely unexpectedly. He died making love to my mom of a heart attack. Oh no, I'm so sorry. Thank you, but this, was, but this was, you know, 50 some years ago, 52 years ago. And my, so I was just a kid and my mom passed away two years later on the same day and exactly the same time, two years wow. later. The connection between them was so strong. So I grew up in this beautiful family, in a, in a loving family, a kind family, where we didn't have very much. My dad was lower middle class, but he tried to make sure we had whatever we wanted. What ended up happening though, because of that, is he didn't have the money to pay for it. So we ended up in a mountain full of debt and he he died with one suit in his closet. He spent all his money giving us whatever we felt we wanted because he wanted us to have what everybody else had. When my mom passed away, my brother thought he was going to live with his best friend's parents in Philadelphia, and I thought I was going to live with my best friend's parents. My brother was 19; I was 15, and we, you know, we were they were close enough together that we would see each other. That's where we thought we would be. But my mother had a sister in the Midwest, and the world 52 years ago, 50 years ago, was a lot smaller than it is now. We couldn't see each other on camera like we can now. There wasn't even an internet then. We, we either had a phone to talk to each other and that, was a, and that was a stable phone that was in the houses, not one that we put in our pockets and carried around with us. And so I think my dad was jealous of my uncle because my uncle, my mom's sister's husband was a household name around the world. And so my dad, I think who had nothing was jealous of this man who had so much And I think my dad was not the type of guy that took um, anything from anybody. I was going to say the other word, but he didn't take anything from anybody. And so um, there was a separation between our families. When my mom passed away, my aunt and uncles came to Philadelphia and they said, we're going to take you and have you live with us. And we didn't know them. They were strangers to us but they were this upper elite class family. My my uncle looked at me and he said, this could work out great for both of us. I'm gonna watch you for about a month and a half and I'm gonna see what you're made of. And if you have the qualities that I think I see already, I'm gonna change your life. I said, really, how are you gonna do that? He said, you'll see. My uncle's company 50 years ago was a multi-billion dollar company. In those days, a man didn't give his company over to his daughters. He had three daughters, two of which were much more capable of taking over that company than I. But you just didn't give a company to daughters. Thank God that ceiling has ber- broken through. Yeah, definitely. With, you know, but but then it was just an old time. They were in the Midwest. It was an older way of thinking. It was, um, but that's what happened. So a month and a half into my stay there, he said, "I'm going to pick you up at school today. I'm going to take you out to lunch. Don't worry about finishing school today. We're going to have lunch and a conversation." And he sat me down and he said. Today's the day I'm going to change your life. Tomorrow, I'm going to start you pushing a broom. And you're going to work your way up from the bottom of my company all the way to my top, to the top. And I will mentor you so that I'm going to have you go as far as you can go on your own. I will mentor you and watch over you and take care of you and guide you and make sure not, you do not, you will not be able to fail. Because in 15 years, I want to semi-retire. I'll still keep my hand in it, but I want to retire And you'll be sitting in my seat. You'll be running a multi billion dollar company. Wow. What do you think? Nathan, what would you have said to him if he said that?
0: I would have said, Thank you. (laughs) Where do I start?
1: (laughs) Which is what 99.99999% of the people would have said. I didn't say that. I said, you know, something, I, first of all, I, I did say thank you. I said, what a generous, kind gesture and what you are giving me everything you are. What more could a person ask for? But I said, here you are, you're a brilliant man. And it took you a month and a half to see if I had was made of the caliber of person that you could see giving my, your company over to. I'm just a kid, I'm 15 years old. I would like to be able to watch you for a year. I'd like to see if you're the type of person I wanna be when I'm 30 years old.
0: Wow, that's profound.
1: And you have to understand it came right on the heels Less than a month before, my, my mom passed away. Less than two years ago, my dad passed away. I, was, I lost the most valuable things in my life. My life had different questions around them than how much money I can make or what was going on. I was driven by some desire to find out what was the meaning of life. Why would my heroes be taken from me? What, would, what, would, what, would, what was the purpose of all that? So as good as it seemed to be able to have a billion dollar company, a multi-billion dollar company, to have all that money, all that power, all that influence, I had to ask myself, is this the type of person I wanna die being? To make a long story long, but a little bit shorter, I ended up walking away from the company. Um, I just didn't see in the person a person that had the answers to the questions I was seeking. He was a good man, good man. But I was—I had a question. My question is: Why does a boy's hero get taken from him? And what is there for me to learn in that? What was? What am I supposed to know? Is it to run a billion-dollar company? Maybe. Maybe I made a mistake. Maybe the whole purpose was to get me out of poverty and put me into the elite society but it didn't seem the answer I was looking for. So I had to walk away. And that principle has happened for me over and over and over again, so much so that I thought I was scared of making a commitment to life because I would get close to something and then I would walk away. I'd get close to something. I'd walk away. And it happened a number of times when I went to where I went to school, my professor who I majored in psychology, my professor, my professor, was the one who started organizational psychology. He said, Danny, I see something in you. I want you to be my protege. I want to start this with you. And when, I'm, when I retire, this will be yours. You'll be, the, you'll be one of the co-founders of organizational psychology. I had hair down to my waist, Nathan, and I looked at him and I said, does this look like an organizational psychology guy? But I was so short-sighted. 30 years later, 40 years later, I was working with organizations and and corporations around how to achieve peace of mind and happiness and and culture and company and values and building a team and how to create something where all the pieces were coming together, where everybody was listened to and heard. I could have had the title of co-founder of organizational psychology, but I walked away. And not for one minute have I turned my back and thought, isn't that too bad? Because here's the thing, Nathan, for me at least, and everybody, if you're thinking, I'm going to turn this interview off because this guy's absolutely crazy, I want to play. <laughs> But here's the one thing I want you to know before you hit the stop button and go away. We can never be successful being somebody else. We might make money, but we can never be fulfilled doing someone else's work.
0: Tell me about Hay House a little bit more and and what you did
1: there. So Hay House came a little later in life. I was a monk in a monastery for 10 years. And the organization of which I was a monk in a monastery was a yoga community. And the founder of that yoga community was well-known, but wasn't that well-known. And I was running the publishing house from the monastery. And I was, I had my eye on this company called Hay House. Hay House also had one person that was that was in charge of it, that all their books were from that person, or all our books were from this person. And we were doing about a million and a half, and they were doing about three million. And so I called them up and I said, listen, we're no competition for you. We're a totally different topic. We're a totally different thing. If I came down there for the day and I took you out to lunch would you let me ask you some questions about how you got from one and a half million to three million dollars because that's that's the stage that we're at I want to learn from you I want to sit with you I want to learn what mistakes you made what things you did how you grew it how you passed that little hurdle because it's time for us to pass that hurdle I think we can I think we can I think we can like a little train that could Said they said, were, they were enamored. They said, sure, come on down, that'd be so nice. And when I went down there, I realized there's something we could do together. They were doing conferences there with Louise and Louise was bringing about 800 people to uh, uh, talks that she was giving. My guy was bringing about 250 people. And so I said, we have a thousand people right here. You have 800, we have 250 how about if I arrange conferences and we bring three or four more people in and we try and shoot for 3,000 3, people? That would be three or four times what Louise is currently speaking to. And I, you know that if she speaks to those people, people are going to love her. I know if my guy speaks to those people, they're going to love him. And let's see if we can bring together the audiences of all these people together and see if we can have something that we can do. So they said, well, we don't have time to do that. I said, I only have time to do that. I'd be happy to do that. I'll, I'll create the whole thing for you. You just sit back and relax. I mean, I'll let you, obviously, if I'm doing something you don't like, you tell me. But I'll create it. So they said, well, who else are you going to get? I said, I'll find people. We found. I found immediately a woman who had been at the top of her game, but was coming down a little bit. Her name was Shakti Gawain and she had started something called Creative Visualizations and she had reached the top, but now she was, she was coming to the bottom, but she was still, enough people knew about her. So we had her come. I contacted a guy who his publishing house didn't even know how to say his name and they were giving him millions and millions of dollars in, in, in uh, advances. His, his, their publishing house called him Wayne Dwyer. His name was actually Wayne Dyer. And so I called them up and I said, hey, Wayne, I've heard you speak pretty well. I've heard you speak. We would love to have you speak on the platform. We're gonna have probably 3000 people here. Would you care to join us? They said, absolutely, are you kidding? And then I called Bantam Books and I said, I'm wondering, I'm looking for one more person. Who's your up and coming author? And they said, we have somebody that you've never heard of, but you people will hear of. You'll be so happy to be on the entry level with us. And I said, nice story. Okay, tell me his name. I said his name happens to be Deepak Chopra.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> so, so so in, in a matter of three or four days, we had Louise Hay, Swami Kriyananda, Deepak Chopra, Wayne Dyer, and Shakti Gawain. And we rented an arena for, that held, held 3,500 people. We sold, We put tickets up for sale for $35 and uh, no advance seat. We sold out of those tickets in about 40 minutes. Wow. When we got to the event, the day of the event, people were sleeping around the building because they wanted to be the first ones in. So I looked at Reed to Reed and I said, hey, Reed, we can't, you know, this is a health hazard. The city's going to get all over us. We can't have people sleeping around the building. So I said, why don't we do a general, general seating for most people, but advanced seating for 500 people. We raised the tickets to $150 for those advanced seating. We sold out of those tickets in about seven minutes. And the next event we sold out in like 32 minutes. And so all of a sudden we had this business where we were selling their books and their tapes and their audios and all the things that we were selling at the back of the room. They were making tons of money. We were making tons of money and we were having a great time doing it. They were meeting each other and helping each other and suggesting to us things. And so Reed said to me, look, you've already had an idea that's made us more more money than we could have imagined. Um, Why don't you think about coming here and working with us? And I said, well, my wife is dying of cancer. I can't come. I'm in Northern California. I can't come to Southern California. They say we don't care where you are. We don't care. You don't ever have to come to the office ever. We've watched you have multi-million dollar ideas and we just end and not be able to do them. And we want you to just plug in and just do them here. We'll support you in doing them. And that's how we got started. I've always had an ability, Nathan, to see things others don't see to see ways of doing things to not be scared to take a different a different risks, to take the challenges and the risks of things that nobody was doing and find a way to do them. And that created an opportunity for Hay House to grow from 3 million to $100 million in sales a year. Fabulous time. And it wasn't because of me only, we had teams of people. Everybody there played an important part. We were a mosaic of people that created something exquisite together. None of us were exceptional in our own. Well, I love that
0: story. I I want to go back to the comment you made about living in a monastery for 10 years. What did you learn living in a monastery for a decade that has helped you in life and and as a, a business leader in, in your career?
1: Um if i had one thing to tell people i would tell them to invite to live in a monastery for 10 years i'll tell you why one of my saddest moments and memories of life is seeing a world that i live in where very very few people know themselves Mm -hmm. they have no sense of who they are they have no sense of what they're capable of overcoming They have no sense of how beautiful they are. If they would put down the veneer. One of the things I talk about so often. Is if I were to drop my veneer. If I were to drop this thing that you think I'm holding up. If I were to show up as I really am. Not as who you want me to be. Would you still like me? Would you still respect me? It's part of the reason why I said it's nice that you can hear my resume. But now forget it. Because the only thing that really matters in this moment is when I show up to you and, I, and I'm here with you, do you not only hear my words, but do you hear the connection of my heart to your heart? you hear the connection of my soul to your soul? Because when I speak to people, what happens is I occupy your mind. Fear lives in the mind. So if I can occupy your mind, I can also occupy fear. If fear is occupied, then I can have direct access to your heart, direct access to your soul. And I can listen to what your heart and soul want to say. In my book, The Mosaic, there's a character called the waitress. And when Mo passes through this portal and sees and comes to this place, he has no idea. The first place he walks into is a restaurant. And the restaurant is beaming with people. And there's, and people are smiling and laughing. And they're, they're happy with the food that they're getting. And, the way, and he waits for a while because there's no tables. And finally he gets shown to a table and the waitress comes to him and he says, what in the world is going on in this restaurant? Why are, I've never seen a place where people are so happy. Like what happens here? What do you do? And the waitress said, it's really easy. We always give them what they ask for. But in addition to that, we give them what they need. When I speak to people in conversation I always try and address the question of what they're asking, but I also try and hear the question of what do they really need. And I try and have my heart talk to their heart and my soul talk to their soul. And that's what I learned in the monastery, how to be secure enough in myself to take that risk, to really connect open-hearted, open hearted, open soul to people and make connection.
0: What is the greatest home run that you have hit in your career?
1: Raising a developmentally delayed daughter and understanding. I have a 31 year old daughter that I've never had a conversation with. She just doesn't understand and can't speak in a way that I can understand her or anyone can understand her. The greatest home run I've ever hit is staying with her long enough through 15 years of her speaking, yelling, tantruming, attacking, and realizing that she was talking to me the whole time. She just wasn't using her mouth. Mm -hmm. In the midst of her rage, I said, you have to speak to me in another way because she was trying to attack. And she said, I am daddy. And I said, how in the heck are you doing that? And she put her finger to the side of her head. I didn't realize, well, because she was developmentally delayed, that she could actually think. I thought because she couldn't speak, she couldn't think, but she could think. She just couldn't make her mouth work to say the words she wanted to say. So she was telepathically putting thoughts into my head. And as soon as she did, as soon as I understood that, 15 years later, after going through tantrums and screaming and attacking and violence and all sorts of things, she never did that again. If that were the end of the story, Nathan, I would be a happy, happy man. But what that 31-year-old kid did, she taught me what she did, everybody in the world does. I went into businesses and I started to look. When people didn't get listened to, they yelled. When they yelled and they didn't get listened to, they tried to create havoc in the companies they were working in. They tried to create chaos, they messed up things, they dropped it, they didn't fulfill contracts, they didn't come on time, they did all sorts of things to be noticed. When they did that and they didn't get that to work, they tried to attack the company, they tried to sue it, they tried to destroy it, they tried to pull it apart, they tried to do whatever they tried to do. Listening, if we would only listen to those people in our companies, from the bottom of the company to the top of the company, if we would listen to what people have to say and ask their opinion, we would never know screaming, yelling, tantrum, and attacking.
0: Okay, everyone, did you love that as much as I did? Thank you so much, Danny, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, we should take the time to listen to ourselves to understand what we really need. Number two, we can never be successful or truly fulfilled being somebody else and doing their work. Number three, we should listen to others. We can't do everything on our own. We should learn to be a mosaic of great people and do great things together. Number four, when we listen to others, we can help them forget their fears and tell us what they really need. Number five, when we listen to others in our companies, we can prevent arguments and other mistakes. To learn more about or connect with Danny, you can find him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook, or you can check out his book on Amazon. And there's links to each of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get a free copy of my ebook, Passion Marketing, and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success through listening. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.